And last week, we broke down Peter's first sermon to the Jewish audience and heard about the effect it had on the city. There was 3,000 people responded to the message out of Peter's uh, sermon there. And the congregation swelled from there. It's not entirely clear if this was counted as like a single altar call, you know, Reinhard Bonnke style. Who's seen those video clips? All those people coming forward. And altar calls like that are only a few hundred years old. Uh, I actually believe it was more to do with the number of people who went through the waters of baptism in immediate response to Peter's sermon. And uh, he calls out, repent. And all these people just made a big stream to the local body of water to be baptized. In the first days, baptism, repentance, and church membership pretty much took place in one setting. So it's pretty full on. In thinking about that, the actual impact on the city, just think about that in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's population was about thirty to 40,000 people at that time. Being a festival season, the crowd in town could swell upwards of 250,000 people crammed into that space. For those few weeks, they would increase the city limits so that the pilgrims could legally be in Jerusalem for the festivals. During the whole festival season, it's estimated that about 3 million people made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festivals. Adelaide sits at, what, 1.2 million? If 3,000 people responded in one sitting to the gospel there, all lining up at the Torrens River to get baptised... With a lot of soap. <laughs> I dare say that would, with all the media that we have, that would make a decent impact on, on, on everyone, wouldn't it? The nation would be affected by that. Imagine the effect it had on AD, Jerusalem, AD 29, with 3,000 people getting baptised out of one town. Pretty amazing. All right, we're going to keep reading today. We're going to start at chapter 2, verse 42. And uh, for what it's worth, this is a tradition, a transitional passage that we're about to go through. This is Luke summing up the first theme before entering a new one. So here we go. Starting at verse 42. Those who accepted his message, that is Peter's sermon there, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship, to the breaking of bread and a prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Luke's description of the early of the church in its earliest days shows us what naturally happens when the Holy Spirit descends and empowered Christians proclaim the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. There's no church growth formula. There's been no consultant go through this place. There's no vision statement on the wall. There's no website. There's no corporate banter. It's just open hearts and obedient believers. The result is a series of byproducts. 
These byproducts are both natural and necessary for believers to grow in conviction. And also for the church to grow into a genuine messianic community. These byproducts became the major things for which the church would be known for. Distinctive traits which stood out and make this community stand out from anything else. Stand out from all other religion, stand out from all other community groups. We're going to flesh those things out today because there's people both inside and outside the church in today's world that suggests that these traits are missing in today's congregations. It's actually a helpful exercise to explore this passage and examine how we keep these traits present, alive and active in the life of our church. The first distinctive trait of the early church is their devotion to apostolic teaching, a deep commitment to what the apostles were teaching. Throughout the entire New Testament, we see the incredible value of God-appointed human teachers. Their task was to ensure that the church remained as unified as it could be in all things pertaining to doctrine. We see the foundations of the Apostles' Doctrine in Peter's first address. You've got the life, the deity, the mission, the death, the resurrection of Christ. In other words, he's preached a Christology as well as pointing to the Old Testament and how it pertains to Christ as well. Over time, they would need to be addressing other areas of concern, both in Scripture and conduct, particularly when non-Jews were coming to Christ. But the apostles were recognised by the church as the doctrinal authority. We see in those few, these first few verses, they were endorsed by God himself as well. And there were many demonstrations of signs and wonders through the apostles. Signs would often accompany instruction. Wonders would cause awe in the crowd and bring people to either worship or repentance. There was a clear understanding here that although the Holy Spirit had come and everyone was being filled with the Spirit, the one whom Jesus said would teach all things... God was still using church leaders to speak on behalf of Jesus as well. The role the Holy Spirit performed here was to bear witness to or repel the teaching that came their way. It's called discernment. We see the purpose of apostolic teaching was to bring people to a place of doctrinal and spiritual maturity and unity so that they too could become teachers. It was an empowering process. Teaching was not about just imparting info and, and having people cling to you as the guru. Apostolic doctrine and teaching was about creating unified, mature believers who could pass those truths on also. 2 Timothy 2 is one evidence we have that suggests this outcome. Paul writes these words to a young pastoral protege in Ephesus. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. In other words, this is a spiritual relay. The baton has come from me to you. Give it to someone else. In Titus 2, we see similar intent. And the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 5, he actually rebukes his audience because they've expected more from the people they're writing to. Going, by now you ought to be teachers, but you're still needing to be taught. Obviously there was a desire to go, you know what? 
I'm a human teacher, but I'm not going to last forever. The gospel knows bigger borders than that, and it needs to get out there. It needs more reliable people to step in there and start teaching it. Ephesians 2, we see that the church is built into a holy temple of the Lord, of which Christ is the cornerstone of this building. Everything references off of Christ. And the foundation is then built after that. It's the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. The early church was clearly instructed to sit under orthodox apostolic doctrine, taught by qualified teachers who were approved by elders and approved by God. This same group of believers were then taught to reject any other teaching as false. But also, they were taught to aim to become competent teachers themselves. So the message of the gospel could continue with fidelity. You and I benefit from that commitment. Today, we stand here today knowing the richness of the gospel and the scriptures because people have been faithful for 2,000 years. The The baton has been handed down faithfully. We're also subject to that commissioning as well. Today, the issue of false teaching remains a huge problem. The modern church needs to stay in that place where we are receiving solid teaching to protect ourselves as well as training to teach as well. To be continually be protected but also equipped. There's no place for believers who have a just me and Jesus mindset. We're to do this together. We're not just to go and, and actually have a, a private little me and Jesus thing. We're supposed to have an outlet for what we know. There's no space for church leaders to go into business for themselves here either. We have a very solid base from which to teach the gospel from. It is our scriptures. We know it today even as orthodox apostolic doctrine. We don't need to doctrinally reinvent the wheel. We just need to continue to preach the original product and be faithful with it. It stood the test of time. Let's continue to teach the scriptures and do it right. The second distinctive Luke lists is their commitment to fellowship. Fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship means to share or participate in common. The idea that it was to be done in a very liberal, generous way. The extension of this word is actually the ancient Greek word for generosity. Generosity and fellowship are closely, tightly linked words. The plan is that a group of believers are to come together with the understanding that they are engaged in something really spectacular. And they are sharing that spectacular thing with other like-minded people. How spectacular? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that God calls us into fellowship. He calls us into a generous, common partnership with his own son, Jesus. That's huge. Generous, common partnership. Fellowship begins with our relationship with God and then extends into the church community around us. With Christ at the center of who we are, we can look around and with confidence understand that we're all in this thing together. Fellowship was especially important in this new church setting in Jerusalem. 
They didn't know it yet. But they were about to cop a lot of opposition. We'll start fleshing that out next week. Fellowship helped them understand that a line in the sand had been drawn. They were separate from the world, but they would be okay because they knew they weren't alone when trouble would strike. Everyone could eyeball each other and go, we're holding the line because we're in this together. We share a common, generous partnership with Christ. A couple of decades later, we see that this idea of fellowship had been picked up by Christians far abroad as well. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends the church of Macedonia for their concern about Jerusalem. Jerusalem had a famine and the churches began to take an offering for that. He writes that they begged him, begged Paul again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift of the believers in Jerusalem. Sharing, that is the same word being used there for fellowship. That word is awesome. Fellowship in the early church was a natural byproduct of church life. And as the church grew and spread, we see that fellowship knew no borders. Fellowship extended into all areas of church life. Fellowship was the birthplace of extreme generosity and regard for the welfare of others in their midst as well. Verse 44 and 45 tells us there was singleness of thinking and regard which even led them to selling possessions and property to ensure others were not in need. As you can imagine, that's created some divided thinking over the years. How do we live out Acts 2 today? How do we go? Do we sell all our possessions? Do we, do we uh, create a common ownership of property and create a commune where we all own everything? Do we go for communal living? What do we, how does this come about? Some church commentators, some people on the outside looking in go, there's not enough of this there. Matthew Henry, guy from the 1920s, wrote, he wrote that, he goes, to ignore this as just history would be to ignore the statement, love your neighbour as yourself in the process. It's pretty full on. Others have said, no, nah, it's just then and there, only then and there. Do I sell my house? How do I live out this? <laughs> a study of this text reveals that the sharing of property and possessions was a voluntary thing. If they sold everything off, then verse 46 couldn't happen, where they broke bread in their homes. They didn't go and meet at the local schoolyard or a, you know, common grounds. They, they had property still. The original grammar used in this text is to impl- it implies frequency and imperfect frequency. They conclude, scholars conclude that the giving and selling were hard and fast rules, not once and for all, but understood as when the need required. I stand before you today confident that I don't have to go sell my house and give everything I have over like that, but... If Jesus needed that, if the church needed that, would I? As it's needed, would I? Would you? How do we express this? The Bible is clear that generosity was always on God's agenda for the people of God. Deuteronomy 26 tells us that the people were instructed to tithe. Ooh, can't pull that word out. <laughs> 
See what I highlighted? This wasn't a God tax. It was to provide for four groups of people in their midst. The Levite, the guy who wasn't allowed to draw an income any other way because he was serving the people of God. The foreigner, the orphan, the widow. People who were on the outer. People who had genuine need. 10% of all that the church, or all the people of God owned, earned, was set aside so that others' needs could be met. James 1.27 says, A religion that God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James was written very early into the life of the church. 1 John 3.17, If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Hmm. Fellowship and all that comes out of it. Generosity, sacrifice, brotherly affection. It mattered deeply then, had a great outlet back then, and it continues to matter today. Out of fellowship came the connectedness to worship together as well. Acts 20 verse 17 tells us that there was a practice starting to happen where they would meet on the first day of the week to break bread with believers. The church met regularly in each other's homes to celebrate the communion table and then follow on with what was known as an agape feast, something that celebrated brotherly love. This practice ensured that Christ remained at the centre of who they were as a group of believers and then their love for each other was then celebrated at the feast that followed. It's out of that idea we get the old hymn. They'll know we are Christians by our what? By our love. By our love. This love and fellowship flowed on into the area of corporate prayer and worship as well. Prayer was viewed as an essential part of the spiritual growth of the church. How many know that's a no-brainer? These guys were dedicated to it. They made the daily trip to the temple courts to pray. These guys were still Jews, right? Although they didn't participate in the sacrifices, the temple was still their reference point for God. But they could come to those courts knowing that through Christ, nothing could hinder their prayer. They could come to those courts knowing that as believers they had entered their own position of priesthood before God. This time of daily prayer, was they were committed to it. It was also the place where they came to hear the Old Testament read and explained as well. That was quite commonplace in those settings. The need to come together, to meet together as believers and pray has always been of a huge priority and I believe the time... We're called to pray now like no other time. I believe the call to pray has never been greater. We have a prayer meeting on Sunday nights here in church. Did you know that? 7.30pm. Did I get the time right? 7.30? Yep. Why don't we come and pray, meet together, use this room instead of the side room. Put us all in here. Prayer achieves much more than fancy lights on stage 
any church growth model, any business plan. Instead of tapping into the next big thing, let's tap into the greatest thing, which is the attentive ear of God. The church in its origins was marked particularly as a prayerful church. The great revivals of our more recent history all were launched off a movement of prayer. A vibrant and growing church today will have a significant movement of prayer around it. So if the church of Jerusalem is committed to being taught and becoming teachers, that's a big deal. If it was committed to generous fellowship, it was committed to worship and prayer in various settings, how did the community react? Really well. This messianic movement was gaining a general sense of favour in their city. People knew who they were. They knew what this body of believers stood for. And they liked it. Not everyone, of course. There was a religious group out there, the Pharisees. that were going to create a bit more of a stir and trouble. But the people at large viewed the church with great favour. The church had integrity. It had genuine love, unexplainable love. It had generosity and service. It, had, it was transparent. It was a tight-knit community. It had a move of the Spirit to supernaturally back them up in what they taught. If you think about it, it's almost impossible to find fault with that sort of church. I know churches become imperfect because I set foot in them. Same with you. (laughs) But look at those elements. That's as good as it gets. In today's society, there are a handful of common objections to the work of the church. Hypocrisy, clicky, no love, no power. I'll go there, but it's dead as a doornail. No sense of belonging. No acceptance of me, no meeting me where I'm at. Too much politics. This is a seemingly endless list. Don't worry, we can work through that. It's not insurmountable. We, we can engage positively with our community. We can show them that, no, we're not like that. What objections could they make about the Jerusalem church? There's too much spiritual power present. Too many miracles. Too much love. Too generous. Too much prayer. Too much food. Lord, help us get to a place where the community can say that without reservation about the church of Jesus Christ in our city today. Perhaps the most telling part of this is the last line. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Daily. The Jerusalem church was marked by a growing list of people who liked them and their Jesus so much that they joined them and did the same things every day. Here's the cool thing. It wasn't people coming in from other churches. That dynamic didn't exist then. It was people being added to their number on a daily basis going through the door of salvation. They were choosing to receive God's salvation. God didn't add believers to the church without saving them. 
There's no such thing as nominal Christianity in those days. It was all in or not. And we see that God didn't save people without adding them to the church. Showing us that the idea of solitary faith was never meant to be on the cards either. We're created for community and designed. The church is designed to be a community for that. In the early days, the church grew because people made a conscious choice to receive God's salvation through their faith in Christ. And after doing so, they willingly, warts and all, attached themselves to the rest of the body of believers with full joy and full commitment. How amazing is that? I'm going to come to a close right now. The band can get ready to come on up and lead us in worship to finish today. I read these few verses. And I just stared at the computer screen as I was looking at that. Just going, what an amazing church they had back then. What an amazing setting Jerusalem was. Let's ask Jesus today to show us how we stack up. Let's ponder what we've looked at this morning and and just say, Jesus, show me where I'm at. It's a church dedicated to instruction. Let's never get to the place where we know it all. Please don't do that. And if we do think that, why aren't we sharing it? The plan is to receive instruction in order to be able to give that instruction to others. How are we going with that? If we all go, you know what? If you go, I need an outlet for that. Talk to Tony. Talk to Peter. Talk about house churches. We receive instruction so that we can teach others. We receive instruction... Because a baton has been put in your hand. We see a church that was dedicated to generous fellowship. Real love in their midst. No one in need. A place where its members hold all things in common. Who understand that we are all in fellowship with Christ first. And out of that by extension each other. Are we in genuine fellowship as a body of believers or are we flying a bit solo what does fellowship conjure up in your mind are we settling for five minute discussions after church and calling that good or are we going deeper than that friends there's got to be something deeper about our faith than that it's got to be something deeper about us than that short little conversations weekend warriors do our sunday thing Who can you phone through the week and encourage and go, who can you phone and go, pray for me, I need help? Who can you connect with at a deeper level in the life of the church? There's a blog out there written by a pastor named Mike Breen. He's a guy known for the 3DM movement and he titled it an obituary for the American church. I found myself agreeing with some of these thoughts. He's talking about the attitudes and cultural elements which could unravel the Western church. The three things he talked about were the culture of celebrity, 
where we heap people to ourselves rather than to Christ. And we thrive on their affirmation rather than the well done of heaven. There was a culture of consumerism where we're all about what we can get out of our local church without getting, giving back. We're called to be consumed by God, not consumers of church. And a culture of competition where human ambition overrides the will and purpose of God in the church. I've seen those happen in church. I've seen them rear their ugly head, friends. But I know the antidote to all of that is present in the early Jerusalem church. Sacrificial generosity and true transparent fellowship. What we see in our text today is a group of believers who chose to serve rather than be served. A group who chose to, re- to produce rather than consume. A group of believers who had no church up the street to compete with. I understand we move around, we find where we fit, but we don't compete. We don't enter into competition with other bodies of believers in our community, do we? We're not to compete. We've got one Jesus we all serve. And we find our fit and we find the way we express that. They had a unified front to take on their common enemy, the spiritual and physical forces around them which tried to stop Christ's advance. And the end result was a church that had a real favour with those around them and an open door of revival. Martin Luther King gave a really strong warning many years ago. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity. It will forfeit the loyalty of millions. It will be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. We see a church that was dedicated to worship. Meeting to break bread. Meeting to worship together in small and large settings. Meeting to pray for each other. Meeting to combine and to join forces for the mission that Jesus is calling us to. How do our commitments to prayer and worship stack up in light of that? And finally, we see a church that takes its reputation in the community seriously. And it's open to the daily intake of new seekers and new believers. Is that you? Is that us? Let's stop and pray and we'll go into worship.